brethren. Hopefully you can hear my voice now. And this is a serious warning. Viewer discretion is advised. Uh, we are in the book of Judges. But God's word, he doesn't hold anything back. And there are some sensitive topics as we go through this book, uh, especially as we get to the, the latter part of the book. There are some very sensitive topics. And so, you know, if you have children in the room, you might want to reconsider having them present as we study this uh, book of Judges. Today, uh, we're in chapter four of the book of Judges. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get uh, straight into tonight's study. Heavenly Father, we pause and acknowledge you as we always do. And we just thank you, Father, as we're in these Feast of Weeks, and we are counting halfway through the count to this wonderful, uh, glorious day of Pentecost. And we just thank you, Father, for recruiting us and pray that you will give us deeper understanding and a deeper faith to go with that understanding, Father, so that we can withstand the forces of evil and just uh, serve you wholeheartedly and, and do all we can uh, to serve you and to move your agenda forward. We praise you, God, and we thank you, and we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned we're up to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 4. And, and what I want to do just for a little bit of context is just go back and finish off uh, chapter 3. And you'll recall in chapter 3, just at the end, that we saw that uh, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. And then it finished by saying this, And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So uh, similar to uh, Ehud, who struck down Elgon, he was able to use uh, a tool that was not typical. So in this case, uh, he is using an ox goad. And so when they're under this oppression, they're not allowed to have weapons, they're more, more or less disarmed, but they can use these unusual weapons in order to uh, subdue their oppressors, or these judges can, and free Israel. What's also interesting with Shamgar is the son of Anath, which is a pagan god. And so why that's the case, uh, you know, maybe Israel is marrying these pagan women and giving these names, but in any case, Shamgar was a judge, and therefore he delivered Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so that's how chapter 4 ends. And then we see now, as we continue into verse 1 of chapter 4, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is the pattern, that they, they, are, uh, they have an inclination. These, these chosen people of God have an inclination to do evil. And when they do evil, according to the terms and conditions of the contract, they're punished. And when they're punished, they cry out. The punishment is so severe, and again, it's according to the covenant. They cry out, it's so severe, and then God delivers them. And then when he delivers them, they go back into their apostasy. It's this unending cycle, and this, this inclination to evil is only corrected temporarily when they're in distress. And, so, and what's interesting as well, here it says, um, they return to evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, it's in the sight of the Lord. In their own eyes, they probably don't consider that they're doing evil. But when God is looking at them and he evaluates them, they're evil. 
And then it says they returned to that evil when Ehud was dead. And so there's some sort of overlap between Shamgar and Ehud. Um, probably Shamgar is in a region of Israel and, and relieving the oppression in that region, while Ehud is still the overall judge. Now, I wanted to just highlight again, and I did last week, but I wanted to highlight again this phrase that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And let's just go back when we uh, began the study on Isaiah and we looked at Isaiah 1, it was very clear. These are an evil people that God raised them. He nourished them, but they turned their back on him. And look here in verse uh, 13 of Isaiah 1. He says, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. So the Sabbath, the assemblies, it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. So try to put yourself in the time of these Israelites. And you're calling the assembly together. It's a holy day. Everybody's coming with their offerings. And God is saying, these people are evil in my sight. And the reason we're studying the book of Judges is so that we can be edified as the church. So it begs the question, is it possible for us as the church to be keeping God's holy days? And because we keep the holy days and people around us do not, we therefore conclude we are righteous in God's sight. But God is concluding differently because he evaluates us according to his word. And when he looks at his word and he looks at our behavior, there's a disconnect. It's hard to reconcile our behavior with his word. And so he says we're doing evil in his sight. I, I think it's worth considering. And especially as we're in this count, this period of evaluation, this count towards Pentecost, you know, is it possible, is it possible, I'm just begging, I'm just asking the question, that we have members who are attending services, who are attending Bible study, and are knee deep in pornography and doing evil in the sight of the Lord? Let's just ask the question, is it, is it possible as human beings is it possible to be keeping the holy days and committing fornication? To be keeping the holy days, the weekly Sabbaths, and committing adultery? Is it possible to be keeping the holy days and assassinating our brother's character? Gossiping, backbiting, doing everything we can to be disruptive within our congregations. Is it possible? And so we keep the holy days, and our evaluation of ourselves is we're righteous. But when God compares our behavior to his word, he's saying we're doing evil in his sight. So these people, they were happy to keep the holy days and the new moons and the appointed feasts. But he says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Wow. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Hey, they are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And this is literal blood. So these people of Israel, these, these Jews and the Israelites, they were literally shedding each other's blood. And when you look at um, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1, and how he pleads to God, like, all I see is bloodshed. So this is true murder. But Christ now ups the ante for the church. 
and he says, we are guilty of murder if we're angry with our brother without a cause. So again, in this period of evaluation and self-reflection, is God pleased with our holy day keeping? And is our holy day keeping blinding us? Our, 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 you know, our righteousness is so profound to us that we no longer see our shortcomings, as Israel did not see theirs. Your hand, imagine that, their hands are full of blood and they're still keeping the feast. Back to Judges 4. So I just wanted to go to Isaiah just to, just to again highlight that in Israel's eyes, they're the people of God. They're the holy nation. But in God's eyes, they're an evil people. Holy day keeping notwithstanding. Judges 4 and verse 2. And the Lord, because of their evil, this pattern, and according to the covenant, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, or Canaan. So they're, they're now sold. into. So they were supposed to go into the Holy Land, and God would conquer their enemies for them and with them. They just had to be faithful, and God would take care of it. Even though these enemies are more powerful than Israel, God would go before them, and he would take care of it. But because they were not faithful, now, instead of them conquering the Canaanites, they, they decided to live with the Canaanites. And God said, okay, this is going to be a problem for you. And now he allows the Canaanites to overwhelm them. And so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hizor, the captain of whose host was Sisera. So now we see the, the general of the army is Sisera, which dwelt in Harosheth of the Gentiles. So... Clearly, these are uh, non-Israelite people, and they're dwelling in the Gentile area. And uh, this is his captain. This is his general. Okay? So let's see the rest of the story here. Now, I wanted to just pause for a moment and talk about these surrounding nations and this holy nation, Israel, and the contrast that should exist between the two nations, uh, the, the separate nations. So we had the Moabites. Let's just quickly remind ourselves of the origin of the Moabites and the origin of their culture. So here in Genesis 19 and verse 31, and the firstborn, remember Lot, had these two daughters, and they barely, they escaped uh, Sodom. And here we just pick up the story in verse 31, and the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come. Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in. This is the origin of the, 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 the uh, Ammonites and the Moabites. And, and the Moabites were this oppressive nation, this this, this um thorn in the side of Israel. Well, where did they come from? This is where they came from. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the seed of our father. Now, again, they were living in Sodom for some time, just as we are living in Sodom. And what happens when you're around people 
who have no morals, well, your morals begin to slide. You know, if you were to talk of abortion decades ago, that would be a terrifying, shocking concept that most Christians would, would abhor. Today, you can bring up abortion, and there's maybe an intellectual abhorrence to it, but it isn't visceral. It's not visceral anymore. And you can bring up adultery and fornication, and it's not visceral anymore because we're around these people. And so this is uh, Lot's children that are were around this intense immorality, and their moral compass got skewed, ended up pointing in the wrong direction. And so the one sister says to the other, you know, I did this thing, I did this immoral thing, now you go and do it. And they made their father <clears throat> drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. So just think of how skewed their moral compass is. That they have no concept of how evil this behavior is. But they think they're doing a good thing. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. So here's the question. If this is the matriarch of this tribe, if this is the matriarch of this culture, is she going to set a very strong moral compass? Okay, I see, let's stop broadcasting. All right, I'm going to just uh, continue recording and just put this in the archive. Uh, so I see that we just have a problem. I can see it stopped broadcasting. I don't know why, uh, but I'm going to just go ahead and continue um, recording so that we have this in the archive. So this is the question then. When she um, has her children around her and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren, and she's the matriarch of this tribe. Does she tell them how evil and wicked she is? Does, does she say to them, I'm an immoral person? Or does she end up skewing the moral compass of the whole tribe so that this kind of behavior is not seen as egregious? And so these Moabites became a very immoral people. Let's continue. Verse 38. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami. The same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. So the Ammonites and the Moabites have, both have this incest, incestuous beginning with matriarchs that are immoral. And so you can imagine the sexual standards and the cultural norms of these tribes. Let's now talk about Canaan. What about the, what about the start of the children of Canaan and the Canaanite tribes. What was their moral compass? Genesis 9 and verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Like That's kind of weird. That here is where it's understanding that the, the, the sons of Noah that went forth from the ark are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then all of a sudden, we're hearing that um, all of a sudden we're hearing that Ham is the father of Canaan. I'm just going to see if I can cut the uh, high bandwidth to see if we'll get a better performance. So just give me a moment here while I just change something in the setting. 
see if this will help. And I'm going to drop the high. And let's see how that works. Okay. So, just how Moses writes this, it's kind of unbalanced. That Noah had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. And then Moses wants to ensure that we know that Canaan is the son of Ham. Like, don't, don't make any mistake that Canaan is associated with Ham. Okay, well, let's accept that. Let's continue. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and he was drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. And that's his right. So he's, he's within his tent, and he, he's gotten a bit tipsy, drank a bit too much wine. But he's in his tent, he's in this tent with his wife, it's his domain, and it's his privacy. And Ham, the father of Canaan, so again, Moses wants us to be really, really clear. Don't make any mistake who Canaan belongs to. Canaan belongs to Ham. So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. He saw the nakedness of his father. And he told his two brothers without. So what is this? What is this nakedness of his father? What's going on here? So he saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward. So now we're seeing a clear uh, discrepancy or polarization between the reaction to Noah's nakedness of Ham, how Ham reacted to it, and you know Noah's drunk, he's tipsy, his nakedness is open, and Ham had a response to it, and then Shem and Japheth had a completely different response. Remember, we're look, trying to understand the origin of these nations, the moral compass of the foundation of the nations, and they laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward. And they covered the nakedness of their fathers, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. They were very, very careful not to reveal the nakedness of their father. Ham, not so much. Ham, the exact opposite. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Don't, don't, don't forget, he's the father of Canaan. Did I mention that Ham is the father of Canaan? Because Moses wants us to know Ham is the father of Canaan. So they went backwards, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine. So he comes out of this stupor now, and he knew what his younger son had done unto him. So something happened. It's obviously something sexual, because we're, we're dealing with his nakedness. So something sexual happened, and when Noah came out of it, so Lot, when he was under, he had no idea. 
when they came, when, when his daughters came, when they left, he, was, he had no clue. He didn't perceive anything. But Noah now, when he comes out of it, it's clear what has happened. How does he respond? So Ham did something to him. And how does he respond? Verse 25. And he said, Cursed be Ham, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. That's not what the text says. So Ham did something to him, and instead of cursing Ham, he curses Canaan, and Moses wants us to know that Ham is the father of Canaan. Did I mention that Ham is the father of Canaan? Because Moses wants us to know that Ham is the father of Canaan. And Noah comes out of this, and he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. This is quite a curse. This, this is the performative word. So Noah can speak the performative word. What he says is going to happen. It's a, it's a power that God has given to the patriarchs. So now the word is spoken that Canaan will be a slave. He will amount to nothing. He'll amount to nothing. What does all this mean? This, the, the, this, the father of this tribe, very, a very powerful tribe that comes to nothing. So to understand what this means, or at least consider a potential meaning, we need to go to the root of it, and the root of it is the nakedness of Noah. Because that whatever sexual impropriety took place, it has to do with the nakedness of Noah. So let's use the scripture to interpret the scripture, and we'll stay in the Torah, but we'll go to Leviticus, where the law is understood, and Shem and Japheth were very careful, but Ham was not. The nakedness of your father's wife shall you not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. So the nakedness of the wife is the father's nakedness. So in other words, I could say, I could, Moses could have written, that Ham went into the tent. So uh, Noah and his wife are relaxing. They're having a bit of wine. Maybe they're going to have a moment of intimacy. And instead of having a moment of intimacy, the wine is very powerful, uh, Noah falls fast asleep, or maybe they both fall fast asleep. And Ham goes into the tent, and they're both uncovered. But the wife's nakedness is the father's nakedness, so says the scripture. The nakedness of your father's wife shall you not uncover, it's your father's nakedness. Further down, in verse 14, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach to his wife. She's your aunt. So again, we see the equivalence between the nakedness of a man and the nakedness of his wife. So if you approach your aunt, that's approaching your, your father's brother's nakedness. So now when we understand that, okay, what happened here according to the scripture, if we use the scripture to interpret the scripture, that Ham went in and he saw that, he saw his mother naked. And he went in unto his mother. And when Noah came out of it, he realized she's with child. The same way when Lot's daughters came out of their tryst, they were with child. One went in, was with child. The next one went in, was with child. Ham went in, and now Noah's wife is with child. 
and she's going to give birth to a child, but Moses wants us to know that child is not Noah's child. Ham is the father of that child because he uncovered his father's nakedness. Now, Genesis 35, we see why, do they, why would a son do this to his father's wife? Well, in Genesis 35 and verse 22, it shows us it's a paragraph. And it came to pass, when Israel dwelt in the land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. He uncovered his father's nakedness. And Israel heard it. So that's what they want. They want Israel to know. When Ham did it, he wanted his brothers to know. Because it's a power grab. And then he goes on to say who the sons of Jacob were. Now the same thing happens in 2 Samuel with Absalom and his father David. 2 Samuel 16.21 And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto your father's concubines, which he left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear. It's a power graph. All Israel shall hear that you are abhorred of your father. So then they'll realize, okay, these two can't get along. One is going to be the king, one is going to be the leader, and one not. It's like in the jungle when you see the, the alpha male, the alpha male lion. But as he's getting older, he begins to be challenged. And eventually there's a new alpha male because he has the, the, the courage to challenge the, the head of the, 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 the pride. So, Absal so Absalom is advised, go in unto your father's concubines, which he left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred of your father. Then shall the hands of all that are with you be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Just as Ham wanted his brothers to know, I did this. So that is the beginning of the tribe of Canaan. Now again, I'm going to ask you, when Canaan begins to have his children, and he's the patriarch of these people, and he comes from such an immoral beginning, does he say to his, his children, my father was wicked, my father was evil, and I'm the, I'm the, the seed of this evil? Or do they twist and turn and come up with a new moral compass so that they can be seen uh, as respectful? And this is the origin of this, this tribe of people. Now, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, this is sort of the prelude to Judges. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it, and have cast out many nations before you, and who have they cast out? The Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. All of, six of these seven nations are Canaanites. Six of these seven nations come from the origin of Canaan, who is cursed because of the sexual immorality of his father. And Noah was not joking. He cursed these people. And so these tribes that God is saying, go in and take them out, these are incredibly immoral people. They have no moral compass. And when you don't respect the sexual union, then you don't respect humanity. And when you don't respect humanity, it's easy to be violent. So not only are these tribes sexually immoral, they're extremely violent. And they have no regard 
for the human made in the image of God. And they rule by the rule of man, not by the rule of law. And so uh, the, the Perizzites are the only ones that are not Canaanites, and they, were, they preceded the Canaanites. So the Canaanites went in and replaced them. But clearly these are very, very immoral people. And the, the, arch, the, arch, the architects, when they have examined these people, they're able to see that children had venereal disease. Abortion was rampant. It was just immoral people. That's how it got some done. Get rid of these people. Now, here we see, again, these tribes. Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, that's the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Gergesites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zemarites, and the Hamathites, and afterwards were the families of Canaanites spread abroad. So all of these are the Canaanites, but then there are certain very prominent tribes that God calls out. So seven of the tribes that they're to remove, six of the seven of them are Canaanites, and, and one of the six is Canaan. So it kind of encompasses all of them. Get rid of them all, God says. And Israel doesn't do that. They decide to coexist with them, and this becomes a snare to them. So back to Judges 4. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, verse 3, for he had 900, so this is a Sisera, the, the general, the captain of the army, and he had 900 chariots of iron. So that, you know, let's just say he had a nuclear bomb. So he was armed to the teeth. Uh, it, would, it would be like, uh, you know, North Korea. And these people are armed to the teeth. And you got to be careful how you take them off. So he had 900 chariots. So he has state-of-the-art technology. This is like um, unstoppable. It's formidable. And when he starts marching with this army, nobody can stop him. So he had 900 chariots of iron. And 20 years, he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Imagine that, two decades. And he didn't just oppress them. He mightily oppressed them. And you know what? They deserved it. These are Canaanites. And God made it clear, when you go into the promised land, get rid of these people. They didn't do that. They dwelt with them, and now these people are turning on them. And, and it's, you know, it's not unlike us today, where we have people coming into our Western countries that do not regard our moral compass, our moral values at all. They don't care about them at all. And rather than stopping them at the gate and saying, look, here are our values. Do you agree or disagree? And if you disagree, you can't come in. We, we don't care. We're like, come on in. It's great that you don't, you don't have Christian values. We love that. We, we, we want to learn from you. Come with your values and teach us. And so now we're coexisting with people whose moral compass is skewed, who think nothing of sexual immorality, who have their own concept of what is, what is a sexual sin and what isn't. And they're abhorred by God. And they are violent. Because once you violate the sexual union and what it means, then complete disregard for humanity. And you become very violent. So they were mightily oppressed by these wicked people. And you can imagine, you know, imagine what that means. You are completely at the beck and call of these immoral people for 20 years. He mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess. So that's the first thing that we must know about this woman. She's a prophetess. The second thing we should know is she's the wife, wife of Lapidoth. Now, I don't know the details here, but as I'm reading Judges, I am a little bit distressed about the men 
or let's say the lack of men or the lack of masculinity in these men. Most of them are cowards. And so Lapidoth, there's nothing said about him. He's, he, he's only mentioned because we, you know, we, we need to know that Deborah, in addition to being a prophetess and having all the responsibilities of a prophetess, she's also, she also has domestic duties. She's also a wife. But you know, a lot of these marriages, when, again, when we don't have the respect for God's word and we don't have the respect for the union, the woman ends up being the leader. And the men are very weak and have no backbone. And, and we need to recover backbone. Not, not, not um, unbalanced, oppressive uh, kind of relationships with, with the woman. No. The union, the complementary union, where both sexes shine. And, and this is what we need to recover. And again, when we're around a society where every man has a ponytail and every man is manicuring his fingernails and his toenails and you know pretty socks and fancy shoes and this is all this is their priority it's it's, it's hard to be masculine like these people can't go to war and win a war women respect masculinity and men true men love femininity and the the the, the genders are supposed to work complementary in a complementary fashion so deborah we understand she's a prophetess and and most of the prophets are men but here's a, a female prophet and you know Anybody who tells you that they're a prophet or a prophetess, I've heard women who say they're prophetesses, garbage, garbage. That's uh, narcissism. That's uh, self-delusion and aggrandizement. God will let us know if somebody's a prophet. And how we will know is they will tell us the future and their words will not fall to the ground. If they tell us the future and it fails, they're a false prophet. If they tell us the future and it comes to pass, then we need to ask ourselves another question. Are they pointing us towards Jehovah or away from him? Because if they tell us the future and it comes to pass, that doesn't mean they're a true prophet. They can still be a false prophet if they're pointing us away from the true God. So the true prophets don't need to tell you they're a prophet. They just need to tell you the future and point you to the law and the testimony. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And here in this case, we're going to see judging in the more traditional way we think of a judge, where she sits in judgment. Cases are brought to her, and she decides on the cases. In every other case, when we hear judges, it's, they are deliverers. But because she's a prophetess, she is going to enable the deliverance of Israel. And in this case, then, by extension, she is also a savior of Israel. So, so all of the judges are unlikely heroes. I think the lesson we, one of the lessons we can draw from judges is, God loves his people, and he loves his people so much that he will save them with unlikely heroes. People who like, I hate that person, or that person has no right to be in that role, and yet God will use that person, the unlikely hero, to save his people. Why? It's not because of the person. It's because of his love for his people. And so here now, as case after case, we're going to see these unlikely heroes save Israel. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah. So there was a, a tree called the palm tree of Deborah. So she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. So now we're moving to the north and this is Ephraim and this is where she dwells. So this is now not so much dealing with Judah but dealing with now the northern tribes of Ephraim or, or Israel. 
and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So clearly she is like, think of the, um, we have provincial government and then we have federal government. And so if something's, I'm in Ontario, if something's happening in BC, they can solve their own problems in BC. If something's happening in Newfoundland, they can solve their own problems in Newfoundland. But if there's a conflict between Newfoundland and BC, well, now it needs to go to the federal level. So the tribes are going to solve their own problems, and they're going to have leaders within the tribes that are going to resolve their issues. But if there's a dispute between tribes, intertribal, well, now, now they need to take it up, and they're going to bring it to Deborah. So she's a very influential, very powerful woman in Israel. And a lot of men have trouble with this. They'll read, they'll read this chapter and never read it again, because they don't know what to make of it, that God is actually going to use, uh, use people that are women to lead his people. And clearly we see this, it's an exception, but it happens, and we see it here. So the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So they would go up on this mountain, she's on, uh, there's a palm tree there, and that's where she would go, that's where they would go. And she sent, now, so while she's there, she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh Naphtali, and so he's, a, he's of the tribe of Naphtali. So she sends for him, and he comes. So Israel's coming to her for judgment, but she sends for him to come. She beckons him, and he's, in a, he's from Naphtali, and said unto him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. So he's from Naphtali, Naphtali. he's to take 10,000 men from his tribe and also the neighboring tribe of Zebulun. How does he respond? So God says to do this, and I will draw unto you to the river of Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude. Remember, he's got chariots of iron. This is state-of-the-art technology. And I will deliver him with all of his state-of-the-art technology into your hand. So this sounds very much like Pharaoh of Egypt. This is how Israel was founded, that they were facing overwhelming odds and state-of-the-art technology and the most powerful leader. And God took him down and delivered them into their hand, into Moses' hand. Well, same thing here. And now this glory is going to go to Barak of Naphtali, that he was the one that was selected. So in a sense, he would be the judge in, in the traditional sense of the word judge, or not traditional, in the sense here of the book of Judges, of being the many deliverers. So God is now going to deliver Israel through the hand of Barak. And Barak said unto her, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. I mean, this is hard to process. God, the prophetess is telling him that God has commanded him to take 10,000 men and go and take care of this oppressor. You know, you look at uh, Ehud, who single-handedly said, I'm going to take down this fat Eglon who is just feasting on the, off the, the, the backs of my people's labor and oppressing them. Well, here you have somebody oppressing Israel for 20 years. And God says to Barak, I'm going to deliver him into your hand. 
hit, deliver the captain of his army into your hand and then take down his whole kingdom. And Barak is like, you know what? Uh, I'm afraid to go by myself. I, I, if I go, I need to know that I'm really, it's, I'm going to be like, this is, he's got chariots of iron. Maybe you didn't understand that. So you need to come with me. If you come with me, then I'll go. But if you're not coming, if you're not going, I'm not going. So to me, this smacks of unfaithfulness or, or weakness and, and effeminate, lack of masculinity. And she said, I will surely go with you. <laughs> She's cool. I'm not afraid of this guy. You know, he's got uh, state-of-the-art technology. That's fine. I'll go. Let's let's do it. You might be you might be afraid. I, I've just told you that God is going to take him down. So I'll, I'll surely go with you. Absolutely. Notwithstanding, the journey that you take shall not be for your honor. You were selected to be honored. And now, okay, let's do this. But you're not going to be honored. It's going to be to your shame. The journey that you take shall not be for your honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So you, you want a woman to come with you? Okay. You know, I forget who it was. Um, I think it was, well, I, I'm just forgetting right now. But there was one, one of the scriptures in, in 1st or 2nd Samuel where uh, he was going to be killed by a woman. And he's like, I don't, want it, I don't want it to be said of me that I died from the hand of a woman. So you please kill me. Well, now uh, Barak is going to be shamed that he could not follow God's instruction. And so a woman is going to deliver. And, and again, the way we know this is a true prophetess is when she speaks of the future, it comes to pass. And she points the people to the true God, Yahweh. So she says the hand of a woman and we assume that that's going to be Deborah, because she's, or he might assume that, because he wants her to go with him. But it's not going to be Deborah. It's going to be another woman, Yael. And we'll see that as we finish the chapter. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. So 10,000 men. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him, because he was too afraid and too unfaithful to go without her. Now, Heber, the Kenite. So again, it just says it here. Remember we said that the Kenites, um, they had a kinship with Moses. Now, Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites. So he's of the Kenites, but he separated himself from them and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zanaim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. So now they're revealing, hey, Barak has gone to Mount Tabor. So the Kenites seem to be in league with Sisera and, and Jabin, part of the, in league with the Canaanites even though there's a kinship to Moses. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots. This is state-of-the-art technology, 900 iron chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him. This is serious, so he's, he's going to take care of this. 
from Herosheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up! She's brave. She's bold. She's solid. Deborah said unto Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Is not the Lord gone out before you? And this is the way it should have been from the beginning. Had Israel been faithful from the beginning, they could have gone in and just methodically moved these Canaanites out of the land. Because the land was given to them and, and is taken from these immoral people. But they've been just mollycoddling the Canaanites and dwelling with them and it's turned it turned back it's turned back on them. But now the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and ten thousand men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts. So state of the art technology notwithstanding, when God is in the mix, God is in the mix. So all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak. So that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. This is hilarious. He put his trust in chariots of iron. And instead of the chariots of iron saving him, he's got to get off of this state-of-the-art technology and abandon it and run on his feet. How embarrassing and how humorous and humiliating. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host. So they were putting up with these people for 20 years of this incredible, fierce oppression. And finally, God says, okay, I'm going to deliver them now. And this is the day. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host under Herosheth of the Gentiles. And I just remembered, uh, I should have said, Pastor Murray is going to be joining me as we get to the end of the study tonight, just so we can have a, a live Q&A. Uh, we'll just check in uh, every, every once in a while, maybe every four or five chapters, just to make sure that everybody's following. If you have any questions, comments, we can, we can uh, take those. Um, and then there was a question that came in over our Slack uh, platform that we'll address as well. So that's coming up just as we wrap up here. So think of any questions you might have for all, everything we've covered in Judges so far. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Herosheth of the Gentiles. And all the host, and again, this is all promised land, there should be nothing of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Wow. So they're done. Now Sisera is running for his life. Howbeit, Sisera, this is again the general, fled away on his feet to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. So remember, Heber was the one, he's related to Moses, or through Moses' father-in-law, but he was the one that revealed to Sisera the whereabouts of Barak. So clearly there's a, a connection there. So he's going to feel safe, safety uh, in Heber's accommodation. So he goes to Heber, Yael is his wife, uh, so she, he goes into that tent and he, and he says here, For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So they, they're in league with each other. And Yael went out to meet Sisera, and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. 
So she sees he's in distress. Come on in, I'll take care of you. And when he had turned in unto her, into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. So she's going to take care of him. And he said, give me, I pray you, a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So he's been running for a while. He must be really parched. And he sees now a friendly face and some accommodation. And he needs to drink something. Can I have some water? And she opened a bottle of milk. She goes, one better. And gave him drink and covered him. So she's really treating him as a guest of honor. Again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be, when any man does come and inquire of you, and say, Is there any man here? That you shall say no. So, in other words, deceive. And, and you know, is there any man in Israel? Again, where, where are the men? So, all these men have been slaughtered. He's the one that's left. But if they come to the tent, just say that there's no man here. Then, Yael, Heber's wife. Remember, there's a union between Jabin and Heber. Heber's wife took a nail of the tent. And again, always these weapons are not the traditional weapons. It's like being very resourceful and creative. So she is very much like um, Rahab, the harlot, who saw Israel's, God is going to give the land to Israel. And so she's, even though Hebrews in union with Jabin, the Canaanites, she sides with Israel. So she took a nail of the tent. So just take a peg of the tent and probably maybe it would be iron or some very serious uh, substance. And took a hammer in her hand. So she's handy. She knows how to, you know, she probably has to put up the tent, take it down, whatever. So she knows how to handle this. And she took a hammer in her hand. And again, I did say viewer discretion is advised. God doesn't hold anything back. And went softly unto him. So he's in a nice deep sleep. And she has intention. And she's being very deliberate now and doesn't want to wake him up. So she goes softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples. So there he is lying, sleeping like a baby. And she comes with this nail and this hammer. She drives this tent peg into his temples and fastened it into the ground. Can you imagine that? So she has something going on with her in terms of maybe despising these people and how evil they are and, and, and seeing Israel's cause. And so she takes matters into her own hands and thus the words of the prophetess Deborah come to pass. That instead of delivering Sisera into Barak's hands, she's, she's delivered into the hands of a woman. And fastened it to the, into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he came in unto her, came in to her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And as you know, as I'm reading this, and you see the trouble that they have with all these kings. You know, judges could, you know, we have first kings and second kings. Maybe judges could, could be called pre-kings or zero kings. Because this is the introduction to kings. 
And, and what Israel should be learning is how horrible these nations are when they're subject to the rule of man. And you have men like Eglon who just get so fat from their greed and gluttony. And all of them, they're no exception. They're just, they come from these immoral matriarchs and patriarchs, and they're ruled by their desires. They have no respect for the human being. And, and they're, they're terrible. And yet Israel, instead of learning the lesson, thank God that our king is God, they're looking and they're just surrounded by these kings and they end up wanting to be like this. So Israel is strange people. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. So that is how uh, the king of Canaan uh, came to an end and we saw from Genesis the origin of these people. These are nasty people. Nasty, nasty people. And just as God took humanity out with uh, floodwaters, with their filth, and started again, he said he would never do that again. And so now what he wants is for his people to go into this specific real estate and he wants to remove these people with the flood of the army of Israel. And he shows that when they are faithful, they cry out, when they follow what he says, it doesn't matter if they have 900 chariots of iron. It doesn't matter what they have. It's easy business for God to take care of. So that's uh, Judges chapter 4. And uh, hopefully that, that was very uh, edifying. And again, it's a difficult material. But what we should gather from this is that God's people are selected by God. They're elected by God. It doesn't make God's people super righteous. And so we need to be careful that just as ancient Israel, there is a problem with the church today. And that is every man does what's right in his own eyes instead of doing what's right in God's eyes. And what's right in God's eyes is in his word. Let's not fool around with his word. Let's read his word, and then let's do his word. So that's Judges 4.